Tonight's Bible reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, uh, all the way on to 3, verse 13. So that's on page 957 in the Blue Bibles. But, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labours might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Laura. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Brian. I'm a part of the ministry team here. It's great to be able to open God's word together uh, and to spend some time thinking about it now. Uh, we're talking about a pretty serious topic tonight. What do we do when Christians suffer? It's a pretty heavy thing for us to think about, and we need God's help. So let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are good and we thank you that you are sovereign over all. We pray that as we spend this time now thinking about your word, that you would help us to understand more of how you would help us to face suffering well as a Christian. We pray that you would help us to be transformed by your grace and to live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you've ever watched or listened to the news you've probably been confronted by some pretty startling images and stories of human suffering. Uh, stories of mass shootings in Germany and the US, stories of mass casualties from earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, and pictures of war in places like Afghanistan and Ukraine. It's a lot to take in, a lot to process. Uh, the end result, of course, might be that we're left up late at night worrying or grieving, not knowing what to do, and just feeling a bit helpless and hopeless. Or we might go numb. We might try and desensitize ourselves to the suffering and the violence, perhaps because it's just so far away, 
or perhaps because, well, we just don't have enough time to process it before the next news cycle rolls on and there's another incident in the news. What are we to do when Christians suffer? What are we to do when we hear stories of persecution in places like North Korea and Nigeria, places where it's illegal to gather for worship? And if your faith is discovered, you'll either be imprisoned and tortured so that you might give up other Christians, or you'll just be killed on the spot. Or in places like Nigeria, where Boko Haram and Fulani extremists will dispossess you of your land, physically injure, sexually abuse, and even kill people in order to try and cause them to recant their faith. What are we to do when we hear stories, and perhaps we even experience some kind of persecution here in Australia for being a Christian? Not that our experience is anywhere near what it might be like in North Korea or Nigeria. No, ours is mostly a social persecution. But it's still persecution. Uh, The narrative in our culture has shifted from, it's okay for you to believe that, just don't push it on me, to it's not okay for you to believe that because your beliefs are now harmful to our society. We don't have the same threat of physical violence, but there is a very real social persecution. And I think it creates in us a real fear and intimidation. We might be caused to think, well, what happens if people find out that I'm a Christian? What happens if I express my faith in the public sphere? Am I going to be shouted down if I speak up? Am I going to be rejected by my peers? Will I lose relationships if I'm open about my faith in Christ? I find that this is now the majority experience for Christians in Australia. There's now this underlying fear and intimidation that makes us afraid to be who we are in the public sphere. What are we to do when Christians face trials of all sorts? Not just persecution, but when we suffer more generally because we live in a fallen world. What are we to do when someone in our church family gets a call that their family member has died? or that biopsy or blood test result is not good, or that someone's condition won't improve and we just have to learn to live with it? What are we to do when marriages fall apart and relationships experience fallout? What are we to do when Christians suffer? What we have here in 1 Thessalonians 3 is what God wants to use to equip and encourage us to have authentic endurance in the face of suffering. He wants to equip and encourage us so that we won't be left up late at night worrying, feeling helpless and hopeless, and so that we won't go numb and try and desensitize ourselves to the realities of life. Today, as we explore this part of God's Word together, we're going to see that Christians are destined to suffer and that Satan uses suffering to shake faith. And yet there's great joy and encouragement when we stand firm. And there's a great tool that God uses to strengthen us. Today we're going to see four things that God's Word calls us to do. 
we're going to see that God's Word calls us to be prepared, to be ready to care, to be encouraged, and to be deep in prayer. Four things that will help us to have authentic endurance when we suffer. Four things that will equip and encourage us for the Christian life. You've probably heard it said, the famous Boy Scout motto is, be prepared. They're two simple words, which are the catchphrase of an English soldier, Robert Baden-Powell, who started the Scouts movement. Uh, And his idea behind it was that he wanted to teach young people to be prepared no matter what challenges you face in life. Whether it be administering first aid or surviving in the wilderness or even just interpersonal and mental challenges that come from day-to-day life, no matter what the challenge, the goal is to always be prepared. It's wisdom that actually extends to every facet of life, like the medical professional who's been so well-trained in handling emergency situations that they don't see something happen and then pull out their textbook and go, oh, gosh, what do I need to hear? Okay, page 250. No, they know what to do, and they don't go through their head, doctors A, B, C, D. A is airway, I think? Yeah. No, they know what to do, right? It's second nature because they've prepared themselves for that situation. Think about the marathon runner who has pushed their body in countless training sessions and they prepare themselves so they know the pace they need to run at in order to finish the race. Or the business professional who has taken the time to gather data, rehearse answers and consider the language they want to use in their pitch to their future investors. In every facet of life, it's worth taking the time to be prepared. We've seen in previous weeks how Paul's stay in Thessalonica was far shorter than he would have liked. Uh, After suffering and being treated outrageously in Philippi last week, we saw that even though they suffered poorly, they came into Thessalonica and they dared to share the gospel. In fact, they shared not only the gospel, but their lives as well, pouring out themselves day and night for these people. They encouraged them, comforted them, urged them to live lives worthy of God. What do you think Paul, Silas, and Timothy might have taught the Thessalonians in their short time with them? Well, they certainly taught them the gospel, the good news of Jesus. They told them how Jesus was God's promised Messiah, that he suffered and died and rose again, that the forgiveness of their sins was God's promise to all who trusted in him. But what else do you think Paul might have taught them? How else might he have prepared them to live a life worthy of God? Well, we see the answer to that in chapter 3, verse 4. I hope you have your Bibles open. Chapter 3, verse 4, it says, When we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. In all their teaching, the Thessalonians, the good news of Jesus and how to live a life worthy of the gospel, Paul saw it as necessary to teach them that anyone who chooses to follow Jesus is destined for trials and persecution. That was not just Paul's teaching. That was the teaching of Jesus himself, who on his final night with his disciples, he told them this. He says, if the world hates you, 
keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, as it is. You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Are you persuaded of this? Are you persuaded that anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted? That Christians, in the words of verse 3, are destined for trials? Do you believe that? If you do, then that means that you will be prepared, that you won't be caught off guard when persecution comes. Just like people living in bushfire-prone areas, they get their houses ready for the fiery flames. Or people living in the Lismore floodplain, they know the importance of being prepared for the rising waters. So, brothers and sisters, believing God's word that Christians are destined to suffer, will you be prepared for trials and persecution? The past century or so has actually been a pretty abnormal time in history where Christians were able to live relatively peaceful lives in the West. But we know that is not the norm. We know that God's word promises that Christians are destined to face trials. So let us not be surprised. Let us not think it is out of the ordinary. In fact, this is what Jesus promised. So let us be prepared to suffer as we follow a crucified king. God's word calls us to be prepared, and second, it calls us to be ready to care. We must be ready to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ because Satan will use suffering to shake faith. Uh, Have a look at the start of our passage now. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 17, where we read of Paul's intense longing to see the Thessalonians. We're told in verse 18 that he tried time and time again to see them, but Satan blocked his way. Uh, perhaps it was the enemies of God's gospel, those jealous, that jealous mob in Thessalonica that kicked him out of that town. And not only did they kick him out of that town, when he was in Berea preaching the gospel, 70 k's away, they packed their bags, hiked over to Berea, and made sure that he had to flee all the way to Athens. Maybe it was at that point in Berea that he wanted to return to Thessalonica and encourage them, but, well, he was forced out by the pursuing mob. Maybe there was some other occasion when Paul tried to encourage the Thessalonians and return to them. Either way, Paul was prevented from coming to them again and again. And why was it so important for Paul to see them? It was because of verse 19. Verse 19, we see that the Thessalonians are his hope, his joy, his crown. This was all his desire, was to stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus with them on the last day. For him, there was no greater prize, no goal more central to his life than to stand before the Lord with these beloved people with whom he had shared the gospel. which of course is a challenge for us. Are we pursuing this prize? Do you so value the people that you get to sit with every Sunday? 
Do you value them so much that there's no greater joy, no higher glory in your mind than the glory of standing before the Lord with them in eternity? You know, there are so many ambitions that we can chase in life, so many goals that we can set, so many things that we can hustle and grind for. But our primary ambition, well, should it not be centered on the glories that are to be revealed when the Lord Jesus returns? That's an ambition worth pursuing. We then see in chapter 3, verse 1, we see Paul's deep love for the Thessalonians, which meant that even when he was in Athens, he decided it would be best to send Timothy back to them. Do you know how big a decision that would have been for them? Athens was like the equivalent of a Christian walking down Oxford Street past the brothels and bars and strip clubs. In Acts, we hear that when Paul came into Athens, he was greatly distressed to see a city full of idols. For him, it was confronting and disturbing to see just how far this city had gone from knowing and worshipping the God that made them. And yet, at that point, Paul and Silas considered that they would send back Timothy, that they would bench their star player, so to speak, take him out of the Athens mission field so that he could go back and encourage and strengthen the Thessalonians. Why would they do that? Why would they send Timothy back at a point where they clearly needed him in Athens? Well, verse 3 tells us the reason. It was so that none of the Thessalonians would be shaken or unsettled by these trials. It was so that, in the words of verse 5, that the tempter would not tempt them, so that their labor in sharing the gospel with them would not have been in vain. See, they knew the reality of the Christian life, that Satan uses suffering to shake faith that Satan uses trials to make people believe that life would be so much easier, so much better if they just threw in the towel and gave up on following Jesus. That he tempts people to seek the good life, not in living for God's kingdom, but in living for their kingdom. They knew that Satan uses hardship to silence Christians, to fill them with fear, and to cause them to forget that the gospel is good news. But see the lengths at which Paul was willing to go to care for the Thessalonians? He was so anxious that these trials might shake their faith that he sends Timothy back to strengthen and encourage them so that they might stand firm against Satan's schemes. What lengths might we go to to care for one another? Would we pray for one another? Would we ask the sovereign God to bring comfort and peace to those who are suffering? Would we give people a phone call or send them a message, be there to support and talk things out? Would we perhaps send them a meal or some other kind of practical help? Would we stand alongside them when they take heat for following Jesus? And would we be that voice that points them back to Jesus when the tempter is doing his work. Satan uses suffering to shake faith. So be ready to care for one another. 
support one another so that we might all stand before his glorious throne, blameless and pure in Christ. We've had be prepared, be ready to care, and now be encouraged. Because in the midst of all these trials and hardships, there's actually great joy and encouragement when believers stand firm. Have a look at verse 6 of chapter 3. This is the ignition switch of the letter. It's what causes Paul, Silas, and Timothy to start pouring out word after word of joy and thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. We see that they were worried about the Thessalonians. But then Timothy comes back and he has good news. He says, the Thessalonians have suffered greatly, but they are going strong. They're filled with authentic faith and love. They were so encouraged to see me, and and they want to see you also. Despite all the suffering and the hardship they've faced, they haven't turned bitter. No, in fact, quite the opposite. They're filled with a deeper trust in Jesus and a greater love for one another. Notice here how the way the Thessalonians handled their suffering encouraged Paul, Silas, and Timothy in their suffering. See, in verse 7, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were greatly encouraged about you because of your faith. What encouraged Paul, Silas, and Timothy in the midst of all their hard work, suffering for the name of Jesus? It was the Thessalonians standing firm in the faith. Christian ministry has got to be the best job in the world. Spending your days telling people about Jesus, there is nothing better I can imagine. But it certainly isn't the easiest job in the world. Now, no offense to anyone in the room who might be this, but I think one of the easiest jobs in the world might be being a food critic. I mean, think about it. You go out to fancy restaurants, eat a delicious meal, and then write a few lines about it. Sounds like a pretty good job. Uh, This week, I discovered another really good job. You could be a water slide tester. That's right, apparently theme parks will pay you to come into their park and just jump on their slides and test it out. Sounds like an awesome job. Christian ministry is not as cruisy as that. In fact, Paul has had to travel from place to place. He's shared Jesus. He's suffered persecutions and floggings, shipwreck, homelessness, and constant threat. And then he says in verse 7, in all our distress, we were encouraged. So consider this, if you're in a hard season right now, your standing firm in Jesus is an incredibly powerful ministry. You might feel like you're just keeping your head above the water, or like you don't have the capacity to care and minister to others. But let me tell you this, you will. As you share your suffering, and as you hold on to Jesus, You'll encourage us all. One of the great stories of Christian endurance, which encourages me, is of a man named Charles Simeon. Uh, He was born in 1759, saved on campus at Cambridge, 1779, when he was 19. Three years later, he was ordained and started serving in a church. After a short internship, 
He began serving at Trinity Church in Cambridge, where he would remain for 54 years. He didn't stay there 54 years because it was a cruisy job. In fact, it was pretty awful. He was opposed by his own church. The wardens and the members of the church so strongly opposed him that they ended up locking the doors and locking off the pews, which was something that you could do in those days, to stop people from coming in and sitting down and hearing the gospel. Outside the church, things weren't any better. There would be people who would come in constantly and disrupt the service. There would be people who would throw stones through the windows. And at one point, a group of undergraduate students waited outside the exit, trying to assault him. But by God's providence, he went another way that day. These were the hardships that Simeon faced. And yet through his endurance, he has encouraged countless missionaries. Simeon is what is, he's considered the spiritual father of a group known as CMS, He was one of the key discipling figures of Samuel Marsden who started CMS. And CMS now sends out countless missionaries into God's harvest field every year, such as the fields that we support. But for every Charles Simeon, there are a thousand other stories. Let me tell you about some of the people in other churches that I've had the privilege of ministering to. I can tell you of Peter, who continues to faithfully disciple the next generation, even after he took up an incredibly busy and stressful job. He decided he wasn't going to take his Fridays off. No, he was going to continue to share Jesus. I could tell you of Penny, who, despite the difficulties of being a single mum, continues to love and care not only for her biological family, but her spiritual family also. I could tell you of Karen, who continues to serve the Lord, even though she has this chronic pain, which makes it so hard for her just to get out of bed. I could tell you about George, who is so old and so frail now that he can't even get out of bed. And yet every time I met with him, his love for the Lord encouraged me in my ministry. You don't know those people but I'm sure you know people just like them here at St. Stephen's. People who in seasons of suffering have encouraged you just by standing firm in Jesus. There is great encouragement when believers stand firm. So look to the people alongside you and walk with one another. Because as we do that, we encourage and we equip one another for the Christian life. We've had be prepared, be ready to care, be encouraged, and finally, be deep in prayer. See, the joy and the encouragement that Paul and his companions experienced led them straight before the throne of God in thankful prayer. They say, how can we thank God enough for you? They don't just pray once. No, night and day, they pray most earnestly, it says. And this is what they pray. They pray in verse 10 that, God would supply what is lacking in their faith. Sounds a bit like a backhanded compliment, doesn't it? A bit like saying your spaghetti bolognese was great, it was just a bit lacking in flavor. Well, no, what Paul is saying here is actually true for all of us. We all have growing to do. 
Uh, whether you've been a Christian for six months or for 60 years, we are not what we will be when Jesus returns. God is still at work. He's growing us and making us more and more like Jesus. So let us be people that never lose that spiritual hunger. Let us be people that don't let this fade from our prayer life. Let us be people who pray, Heavenly Father, grow us, shape us, make us more like Jesus. By your Spirit, supply what is lacking. Bring to completion the good work you've begun in us. Transform us by your grace for your glory. You know one of the things that God uses to supply what is lacking in our faith sometimes is actually suffering and trials? If you're in one of those seasons, let me encourage you to pray. To pray that God would use this time to supply what is lacking in your faith, to grow you and make you more and more like Jesus. They then pray in verse 11 that they would have a clear path to visit them again. They have this longing to see the Thessalonians so that they might encourage their faith. Do you pray like that? Do you pray with a a longing to see your brothers and sisters in Christ? I think we can often take it for granted, the gift that we have of being able to meet together. We can go through the motions, walk into church without praying, without asking, who are the people that I might sit with and encourage today? But as Christians around the globe meet together in fear of being found out by their government, or as Christians hike several hours just for the blessing of being able to talk with another believer, I mean, aren't we so reminded of the great gift that God has given us? We should be people who enter this place with joy and thanksgiving and an eagerness to encourage one another to stand firm in Jesus. They then pray in verse 12 that the Lord would cause their love to increase and overflow for each other. Because just as we still have room to grow in the faith, we also must grow in love. To grow as a Christian is not just to grow in your knowledge and assurance. No, it's to become more like Jesus in the way that you love one another. So as we pray that God might grow us and make us more like Jesus, we're praying for a deeper love for one another. And finally, verse 13, they pray that God would strengthen their hearts so that they would stand firm in Jesus, that they would hold fast to the one who makes them holy and blameless and pure on the day when Jesus returns. This is what it looks like for us to remain deep in prayer to pray earnestly and continually, that God might grow us in faith and love, that we might see and encourage other Christians, and that we would stand firm to the end. What are we to do when Christians suffer? What are we to do when we suffer for bearing the name of Christ, when we face trials of all sorts because we live in a fallen world? Well, today we've seen what God's word calls us to do. Be prepared. Don't be surprised by trials and persecution because God's word is clear that Christians are destined to face them. Be ready to care. 
we know that Satan will try to use suffering to shake someone's faith. So let us go to great lengths to care for one another. Be encouraged. Never underestimate the ministry of a brother or sister who stands firm in the face of hardship. And be deep in prayer. Pray that God might grow us in faith and love to encourage one another and to stand firm to the end. God's word has given us so much to equip and encourage us through the hardships of life. So let's come to him now. Let's thank him for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the deepest, darkest valley, you will not abandon us. We thank you that you are for us, that you love us, that you are in control, and that even in suffering, you can use that for your glory and for our good. We thank you, Father, for your word tonight. We pray that you would continue to equip and encourage us no matter what season of life we face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.